any entrepreneur who starts a company, what they're trying to build is an infrastructure, okay, that can then generate revenue that is more than the infrastructure costs so that it builds profit. And once you have profit, that's when you have a sustainable company. You're left with a, um, a, a pretty um, a pretty scary uh, percentage in terms of, okay, out of the 10% that made it past the startup phase, only 4% of those are going to exceed a million in revenue. You know, I don't know a better way to say it other than I think most of us don't start companies to, to sell, you know, $500,000. Like we're trying to grow a business, right? Mm -hmm. If you wanted to get to that million dollars, there's a much better way through acquisition. Maybe you're much more innovative and entrepreneurial and you want to acquire a company that has the existing customer base of a product that you want to build. It's time for another episode of the Cold Star Project about the unexpected challenges of growing businesses. I'm here with Walker Dibel. He is the author of, I'm going to read this out, Buy Then Build, How Acquisition Entrepreneurs Outsmart the Startup Game. This is a book that came out and was so instantly like, just, it's just awesome. And Forbes even said it was one of the top seven books all entrepreneurs must read. Okay, so I think you should pay attention to it. And he has uh, bought over seven companies in the last 10 years. And his book is being used in universities as a textbook and that. So Walker, thanks for being here. We've been waiting a while, some months for it. Jason, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It, it is really, really cool. Uh, we chatted a little bit before we got started here. So the big idea here is that um, instead of trudging through the awfulness of the startup world uh, in which you can die in a myriad of ways, why not acquire a business that has already figured out all these things, right? That how to drive revenue, who their target market is, uh, what those people will actually buy, what price point, and hopefully profitable <laughs> delivery, right? Of of this product or service why not go and grab that because what you really want if you're owning a business is an income stream right and so it, it's better to acquire something that is producing revenue already from this point of view than go through all those painful and, and frequently unsuccessful uh, processes of building from nothing and yet People have this belief, myself included, before I learned about certain techniques like leverage buyouts and things that you talk about, that you need to have tons of cash available. You must have to have a million dollars or $2 million to be able to buy some existing business. What do you say about that belief? Wow. There's so much in what you just said to unpack that I feel like I could talk for an hour based on that. <laughs> but let's get right to that. Let's get right to, you know, the end. Um, well, let, let me back up just a little bit and unpack what something you mentioned in there, which is, you know, I think that not every startup or every entrepreneur should be approaching an acquisition entrepreneurial beginning. Okay. I think that most entrepreneurs are really not going from zero to one. They're sort of, you know, starting a business around, you know, what, what, what it is that they want to do. Um, you know, an example that, you know, maybe may or may not be relevant to your listeners is I'll often see someone who's, you know, skilled at search engine optimization, start another, you know, SEO company here in St. Louis. And it's like, well, there's, there's already 12 or 24 of them. Like why, why another one? Well, cause I'm good at it and I want to do it. I'm going to go try to hack away at it. Okay, fine. So it sounds techie and new, but the truth is, is it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's already a mature industry where, where it is. Um, in the same regard, only 4% of companies in the United States ever exceed a million dollars, mm -hmm. right, in, rev in annual revenue. 
And when you add to that the fact that, you know, 10% of startups make it past the startup phase, uh, you're left with a, um, a, a, pretty, um, a pretty scary uh, percentage in terms of, okay, out of the 10% that made it past the startup phase, only 4% of those are going to exceed a million in revenue. And, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know a better way to say it other than I think most of us don't start companies to, to sell, you know, $500,000. Like we're trying to grow a business, right? Um, so the thing, and furthermore, um, if you wanted to get to that million dollars, there's a much better way through acquisition. Uh, so maybe it's through, um, uh, you know, an exact fit for what it is that you want to build or maybe you're much more innovative and entrepreneurial and you want to acquire a company that has the existing customer base of a product that you want to build, right? We can mm -hmm. unpack all of that if you, if you want to. But the, to answer your question, um, you know, I, I obviously have started businesses in the past and I work with, um, you know, I'm in a lot of entrepreneurial communities and uh, I got to the point where I'd be introduced to somebody and other entrepreneurs would sort of introduce me as, oh, this is Walker. He buys and sells companies, which started to feel like, boy, not only do I feel like I'm, you know, doing trading cards and not actually practicing, you know, like the hard work that is entrepreneurship, but, you know, I always got this sort of glance that was sort of like, oh, it must be nice to be super rich or have a super rich, you know, family or whatever. That's not the case. Uh, the truth is, is that, you know, the, um, the, the SBA, the Small Business Administration, is lending up to 90% of an acquisition uh, uh, purchase to individuals, right? And so the thing is, is you need to come up with about 10% uh, of the transaction amount. And with multiples, you know, somewhere in the, you know, two and a half to four times, uh, you know, adjusted EBITDA or seller discretionary earnings, let's back way out, earnings, you know, the cash flow to, you know, benefit to the owner. Um, you know, you're talking at, you know, a three-year return or a four-year return. And, you know, you need to come up with a certain amount of cash that is equivalent to the average down payment of a house in America. In other words, you can buy one of the largest 4% of companies in the United States with less than $100,000 and typically closer to $65,000 or you simply need to raise that that amount of capital from people you know. Nice. So nowhere near as difficult as you think. I can remember the first time I bought a car, uh, monthly payments. Actually, I leased it. And I thought before I went into dealerships and started looking around, I had this idea that it was so much money and I would never be able to afford it. And then you find out it's just a few hundred bucks a month, right? For, for a new car. Like, wow. So, and this was some well, years ago now, you know, when I still had hair, but <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, Jason, the difference that there's yeah. also a small difference between those two things, which mm. is not only, um, you know, not only does it, you know, does it come into perspective because it's based on historical earnings, but the truth is, is that that business is going to pay that principal and mm -hmm. interest loan back True. as long as you, as long as you don't screw it up. Right. I mean, it's really important that you can buy a business that fits you, but, um, uh, your car doesn't pay Right. That couple hundred dollar payment. <laughs> right, right. No, the car is a depreciating asset. The, uh, the uh, business is a, is a money producing asset, revenue producing asset. So very important. Just one more thing at the risk yeah. of beating this to death. There's yeah. one more comparison I want to draw, which is, um, you know, some, some listeners might be like, oh, 
you know, dropping $65,000, $100,000, you know, that's not, that still sounds like a lot of money. Hmm. And that's, that's fine. But what I would say is, is to that is that if you're looking to start a business, um, it's going to take some, you know, minor amount of capital investment. Mm-hmm. And the average um, uh, startup is started with about $67,000 mm-hmm. in cash infusion. And the, um, well, I'll stop there. We can talk about that. Well, and let's not forget that that's the salary of one talented person a year. That's it, sixty-five to 100000 And anybody who questions that 4% million dollar mark figure, I've been sharing the heck out of that Vern Harnish uh, plateaus, wow. revenue plateaus picture ever since I saw it in the book. I went and took a picture of it with my cell phone, and it's everywhere that I am. Uh, that There's that thing, even going back to Think and Grow Rich, which some people hate and some people love but there's a chapter in there on uh, uh accurate thinking it, and the, even if you don't like that just to, like the thinking grow rich thing take away the accurate thinking part of it which is what is the reality of the situation here what is the car cost what are what are what are the actual numbers for startup risks and failures so let's move on here to uh the next question which is what is the biggest yeah but you've encountered from people who have read your book Uh, good one. I think that, um, okay. It's along the course of two lines of thinking. One of them is, um, okay. I actually, I do have a one star review out there on Amazon. Uh, if you look at the majority of reviews, people seem to like it. If you look at Goodreads, people seem to like it, but I've got this one out there and I was really excited to get it because I always Mm. believe that if you only get, you know, high rated reviews, then you weren't getting enough readers. But when I read it, I was a little disappointed because it's something that I hit on in the book, which is you know that my definition of earnings does include the salary to the owner operator. Mm-hmm. And so and so the thing is, is you truly have to understand how earnings is being defined. It's not you know net profit on some publicly traded company. It's a different measurement for you know, one to $20 million um, um, privately held companies. It's, it's measured differently. Um, but uh, the, the other component to that is that, you know, a second ago, I just breezed over, oh, yeah, with, you know, under $100,000, you can go buy one of these large businesses. And the truth is, is that, um, you know, in what I just explained, there's a 90% uh, um, leverage, you know, debt component that you mm-hmm. have a personal guarantee on. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is, is it, it's not like you're using someone else's money, like a startup entrepreneur is who goes out for a capital raise. Uh, but it's also one of those things that I firmly believe and have experienced that when entrepreneurs use other people's money, um, let me say it like this, Jason, and this is totally unfair from one line of thinking, but it's, but it, it, it's close to how I think about it. A lot of these entrepreneurs raise capital, they put none of their own capital at risk, and then they take a salary off of the capital they raised. How can you call that an entrepreneur? I mean, I do, and I agree with it, but really think about it, mm-hmm. right? It's basically the definition of an employee. It's just that you have an idea that you know uh, uh, the company's letting you run with, okay? And so a lot of times, as I see startups kind of starting to fall apart, behind closed doors, you'll see those co-founders kind of going, okay, well, you know, we, we need to start looking for jobs while we still have, you know, enough, enough burn rate left for a couple of months. And it's like, what? I mean, there's, a, there's a disalignment between 
between the, the, the startup entrepreneur and the capital they've raised. And I think that if you are ready to invest in yourself, then you know, going ahead and getting access to the capital that you need in order to you know, acquire your own business is um, a, a thing that, that you need to be able to do. And I think that startup entrepreneurs are at a disadvantage not being able to do it. Hmm. But Jason, to your point, it adds a, a high level, a certain amount of risk to the, to the, the scenario. And I think that um, um, a lot of entrepreneurs out there will, you know, you don't, I don't want them to, um, look, debt will either make you bankrupt or make you very rich. <laughs> but it has to come down to what business is right for you and also looking at the historical returns of SBA lending. In other words, about you know, less than 1% of startups make it past the startup phase and exceed a million dollars in revenue, whereas there's less than a 2% failure rate in uh, SBA lending over decades. Hmm. So you know, the thing is, is that you know, you're, 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 pulling, um, you're pulling capital from an organization that has an extremely good batting average. And you know, once they're backing a project, um, you know, I think there's a certain amount of, of confidence that can go into that. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. What about, let's personalize this for our space audience for a moment. What if you're a startup space founder wannabe, you haven't created a company yet, but you understand the capabilities. Now this is a mistake that I see people make all the time in this field is they, they think just by having a brainwave and going out and creating a capability, say for a new type of propulsion or something like that, right? Uh, the market's going to just come cluster around them and, Oh, you know, come on, I want to buy that right. No, that is not the case. But Let's say, let's say you uh, had that idea that you wanted to change the universe. And uh, so by, by following um, Buy Them Build, you would look for a company that is already in that area and had customers and interest and letters of intent maybe or something at least uh, and go buy that and, and then maybe hire on a few other pieces to give you the technical expertise that you wanted. What about culture fit though? Um, how do you make sure that the idea that you had in your mind of the organization that you wanted to build, like I was very clear with Coldstar about our values and, and what kind of organization that I wanted to build. How do you make sure that you go out and get that out of the company that exists already in the real world? And what if there is a bit of a divergence there? Gosh, what an insightful and great question, Jason. Um, I guess I would, I would say this. Um, I want to tackle that a couple of different directions. First, I would say that um, in the first part of your question, you were talking about you know, acquiring this infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And let's look at what that is for, for just a moment. In other words, any entrepreneur um, who starts a company, what they're trying to build is an infrastructure okay, that can then generate revenue that is more than the infrastructure costs so that it builds profit. And once you have profit, that's when you have a sustainable company, okay? Um, if, you, if part of that infrastructure is, you know, the component that you're looking for or the customer base or the supplier network or whatever that key part is that's important to you, another part of it is also going to be the personnel that transfers with that business, right? So my answer is slightly existential in saying, you know, you know, we've all seen the, the movie Moneyball, right? Or mm -hmm. read the book Moneyball. And I, and I think that, um, you know, sabermetrics, as it's called, I call this entremetrics. In other words, don't swing for the fences, 
work on getting on base, mm -hmm. right? And I think that, you know, simply by saying, all right, we have the revenue, we have the customers, we have the infrastructure, we have the personnel, and we have the profits to be sustainable, gets you on base immediately. Then it starts to get into the details like, okay, there's a, there's a culture thing. And, and truth be told, it takes time, Jason. It takes a lot of time to go from, um, you know, Jason started a company to Walker's buying it and taking it over and, you know, it's going to kind of lead it this way. It takes years. Um, the other thing, though, is that if you are acquiring, sorry, if you are growing through acquisition, in other words, you already have an infrastructure and you already have people and you already have a culture, uh, the number one reason why acquisitions in growth scenarios don't actually capitalize on the, the value that they predicted was because of culture reasons, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, um, we'll see what happens, but um, you know, we all love Amazon right now, right? I mean, you know, we're coming off of you know, the holiday season and Amazon can do no wrong once again, um, you know, but they're essentially a Walmart kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. They acquired Whole Foods, which has mm -hmm. a very, very different, you know, empowered employee first kind of culture. Hmm. So, um, you know, I'm not on the inside, but I'm, it, it's a story that I'm, I'm very interested to see how it unfolds. Pulling that around full circle, hmm. I would recommend that if you are going to buy a business, that business will be created out of the image of the owner or entrepreneur that's running it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, make sure that you fully trust that person. Right, because I think that the people that um, have failed at acquisition entrepreneurship, in retrospect, they always say the same thing. At least I hear it, which is, you know, I, my intuition was that you know this guy was a little a little off, um, but I just sort of thought that was him, and he was the problem, and I'm going to come in and fix mm -hmm. it. And then I got in there, and I realized <laughs> my intuition is right. The whole company was built in his image, and you know, the, the thing doesn't kind of work out. It hits the rocks pretty quickly, so. Okay, great answer. That <laughs> shows me what I need to know. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first, and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt, and in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on, but business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk, but there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. There's a question that, that I've got down here that I think is good here. We uh, Readers who I have enjoyed your book with have noticed that the math of business is really well covered in it. Okay. Uh, but operations does not seem to have been given as much importance, i.e. the flow charting and a, um, getting stuff written down about how the delivery of the product or service happens. Why is that? So Jason, let me ask you a question, which is, um, are you an operator? I, yes. 
Are you a are you someone who might put together flowcharts? Yeah, I might. <laughs> it is a process so, engineering centered business. So yes. Yeah. So in other words, okay. So in other words, it's a very specific question to you personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I am going to filter right. it in. Sure. Yeah. No, and I think that's perfectly fine. The, the, the thing is, is that, you know, what I was trying to do with buy then build was, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of years, um, I, I, you know, I, I've attempted to start companies multiple times. You know, in, in essence, I sort of have decided maybe I'm just a bad entrepreneur, right? But the thing is, is that um, I started figuring out what was working for me. And then I kept going back to starting. And it was like, well, why am I starting from scratch when I can, you know, uh, you know um, uh, acquire and build from there, buy, then build? And, um, you know, what, what I was trying to do was kind of wake up the entrepreneurial community to listen, there's a better way, right? Mm -hmm. For most of you, or there's another way that there's a way that's being completely ignored, and mm -hmm. yet it has such extreme benefits that it needs to be considered. Um, and the thing is, is that there are four opportunity profiles, and you know, one is sort of an eternally profitable business, one is a turnaround, one is a high growth business, and one is a platform company. So, in your specific case, okay, and and, and you know, these take into consideration both you know growth potential and value potential, and you know. In my book on page 65, I've even got the nice four, uh, you know, four quadrant uh, uh, model that you can see there. And the thing is, is that in a turnaround situation, operations are excruciatingly important. Being able to prioritize um, what needs to be done in what order and project management is of extreme importance, right? A platform company for you being in operations is going to be tremendously different than a platform company with someone who has, you know, superior B2B sales uh, uh, skill sets, right? And so the thing is, is that um, what I try to do in Buy Then Build is help people understand, you know, what, what everyone gets wrong when they mm -hmm. do actually say, okay, I want to go out and buy a company, and then how to back up and sort of put the pieces in order correctly. And so for you, you know, coming up with a target statement that is going to, um, amplify your strengths and and bring it to the company is going to look very different from another individual right and at the end of the day it comes down to what is it that you as an entrepreneur are bringing to the company because mm -hmm. that is your growth opportunity and the growth opportunity as we pointed out with the, with you know if you're pulling 90% debt you better be planning on growing this thing right in my book and as entrepreneurs that's what we want to do so you want to live the best life possible. And that means it's something that, that is amplifying your skill sets. It's something that you're all in on. And it's something that the activities of your day-to-day -day life are aligned with what it is that you want to be doing. One more thing, Jason. If I were to go into operations, I would also have to go into sales management. Mm -hmm. I would also have to go into online marketing. Yeah. I would also have to go into financial engineering and everything else. And so the thing is, is that I tried to write a book that was, you know, the best book that I could, that hadn't been written, rather than something that kind of, you know, summarized other business books that are maybe mm. there. Okay. So, and you've got an MBA. It's not like you're coming at this from, a, you know, a self-educated thing or something. Um, okay. 
let's say you found a business that you want to buy where one partner is interested in selling, maybe even eager to sell, but other partners, maybe there's one, maybe there's two are not so interested in, in getting out or they're a bit, you know, what the heck is going on here? Uh, or maybe they, the other partners want a massive payment and they're gone rather than the monthly ongoing payments until uh, the large amount is paid off. What can you do to, to get progress started? Okay. Great question. I think that, Jason, you asked very good questions. I, I think that, um, okay, short answer, <laughs> you can't do anything. Mm. Okay? If a seller doesn't want to sell, it's mm. not going to happen. And don't, you know, just stop, walk away. I mean, you know, make them want it at least, right? Um, I, you know, I also work as an M&A advisor with sellers of online businesses. And the thing is, is that like, I will spend often, you know, months with them at a time, getting them sort of mentally ready. I had a call yesterday with someone who's exploring selling for the first time. And we sort of went through um, the entire business, gave him evaluation, and it wasn't, it, it didn't align with his goal. And so then he was like, well, let's sell next quarter. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. Hmm. If we're not going to achieve your goals, what we don't even need to get started. And the reason is because I can get him to third base, but then he's not going to let us get home mm -hmm. because it's not achieving his goal, right? Um, however, more nuanced than your question is simply about deal structure, right? So in other words, you know, you've got all these players at the table. Let's just say they all do want to sell and you can get it through. One's maybe playing a little tough, but maybe it's, you know, positioning or, mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, deal structure is more of an art than a science in that it's very specific to the deal and the personalities and involved mm -hmm. and what it is that they want out of it. Right. And so a lot of time I spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, business brokerage space is something that is opaque. It's fragmented. It's, it's, it's private. I mean, if, if one guy sells a business to another person, another person, it's not published anywhere, like what was paid and at what valuation and you know, what, what was included in that valuation, right? Like, so, so all the information is incomplete. Um, and so I spent a lot of time thinking, okay, well, it's ripe for disruption. How's this gonna work? And you know, as I have gotten more and more experience in helping other people buy and sell businesses, I've come to learn, I, you know, maybe one day that day will come. It certainly will as we continue to evolve, but it is so far out there that it's just not going to happen um, in the next, um, you know, let's say 10 to 20 years. It's just not going to happen in my opinion. Every deal has human components and specificities to it that is non-transferable to another one. They all kind of help in that experience, but you don't throw it out there and say, hey, I've got a, you know, three bedroom, two bathroom in this zip code and like people know what it's worth. There's no, you have no idea. Right. So um, I guess what I would say is, is you know, um, if we wanted to go into a case study, I'd be happy to work through that with you. Um, but it's it's a little too generic to, to answer specifically. Give me a specific example, Jason. Let, right. let me kind of challenge you. What, well, it sounds like the, the right answer is to go get uh, Chris Voss, Black Swan type, uh, you know, the hostage negotiation guy, and and look for those real good leverage points on. Uh, on, on what would make this deal work, right? And you cannot, as you've said, you can't predict those things ahead of time. You have to engage and, uh, and uncover them. 
Well, you do your best. And the thing is, yeah. is that like, there's a lot of, you know, search funds out there that are kind of running their own, you know, what they'll call proprietary outreach, trying to get deal flow in yeah. front of the brokers. And that's fine. Um, but you're talking about people that are essentially on a full-time salary doing that. And mm -hmm. um, they're basically doing the work of the broker. So um, the thing is, is that if you, and they're going with the bird in hand approach, if you can be the bird in hand, then a seller is a lot more willing to sort of work with you if they're ready, but it's going to be a very, very inefficient process for the buyer. Okay. So in my mind, you know, I always found success in if I just did all of my deal flow through the brokers that are working with the sellers, then they're the ones that have already put in the six, nine, 12, 24 months mm -hmm. working with the sellers so that they're mentally ready. They've got their valuation together and they know what to expect. Um, and then um, you know, you need to just sort of leverage, you know, for lack of a better description, I'll use comps in the industry, uh, for the industry that you're looking in and, you know, the advisor or the broker that you're working with should be able to provide those even to the buyers, um, that will help sort of tell you, okay, here's the sort of acceptable range for what's realistic here. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you, if you're throwing realistic offers at sellers and they're just like playing hardball, then. I don't know what to tell you other than don't fall in love with that business <laughs> go find another one. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, right. I mean, if I, you know, that's maybe a negotiation question. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think that's where it goes. Okay. Well, I'm glad we explored that. And a complimentary interview to this one with Walker here is the uh, one that I have with the broker, John Garuti. Um, that that's a, in the previous episodes of the cold star project and check that out and it, it will be quite educational and you will find that most business owners are very unhappy with the valuation <laughs> that has eventually <laughs> arrived at. They usually think exactly it's going right. to be sky high and it just ain't, you know, Can I speak to that for a moment. Yeah, go ahead. Speak to that because I think that that's exactly it. That's exactly it. The first time that an entrepreneur gets at the valuation of their business, they're usually, the wind is out of their sails a little mm. bit. And there's a psychological process they need to go through. Yeah. And number one, it's because of the risk associated with these smaller companies, right? Um, but the, the, and the multiples that they're going for in the market. But the thing is, is that as entrepreneurs, you know, we put everything we have into mm. starting something. And we will bleed and sweat and exhaust ourselves. And at the end of the year, we have like five bucks right? <laughs> and then we do it again and we get half a million dollars and then we do it again and we get a million dollars and then we do it again and we get a million dollars and one dollar. And, you know, we all have shiny object syndrome. So we kind of start something new, right? And then we sort of say, well, okay, I built the value over here. I'm now selling a million dollars. Let's go sell it. I put everything I got into this. And, you know, and by the way, I just reinvested into this whole like, you know, balance sheet asset that it has nothing to do with earnings. It's only as good as the earnings can generate. And so there's a disconnect between running a business, building it from scratch, reinvesting in it, and what the market value of that company actually is to a buyer. Right, and, and I'll challenge people to go back and listen to this interview again <laughs> once we're done because you explained the infrastructure of what a business is supposed to do and I don't think there's like I don't think there's a lot of founders out there who really have that idea clear in their head I, I might pull that out and use it as one of the introductory snippets that I put as a native video on uh, like Twitter or something like totally that. agree it's like what's the point of starting a business and why do they mm -hmm. fail it's like the point mm -hmm. of starting a business is you've got to get sustainable we can't mm -hmm. all run around like you know 
I'll, I'll harp on Amazon again. We can't har- we can't all run like Amazon and just like burn cash for you know a couple of decades mm-hmm. because you know we we're not pumping in you know millions of dollars in in um, um, you know venture capital up front and you know building something that's going to continue. Cool. We need it. We need it to get sustainable as soon as possible. All right. We're getting close to the end of, of our time. We have a hard stop today. Uh, so I want to ask you this question. I want to find out like, who is the best kind of person to come and work with you? Like you've had a bit of success, quite a bit of success from, from this book and, and approach. Uh, and I'm curious what kind of problems company owners now come to you for to solve and, uh, you know, have you help fix. And also like, do they come up with you with the right idea or the wrong idea of what it is that you do? Or are they pre-sold? That's incredible. I think that most people have no idea what I do. And it's probably the hardest question to answer. At a cocktail party, people are like, what do you do? It's like, okay, have a seat, right? But um, so, so I, spend, I spend probably half my time, um, and, and you'll see these percentages don't add up, but I spend probably half my time um, um, helping online entrepreneurs exit their businesses, as well as the buyers of those businesses buy them, okay? Mm. Um, but then I spend the other half of my time, um, I'm building out a new program with buy, then build. The number one question I get is, so, you know, do you help people like, like find a business and buy it? And my answer has always been no, because there's no good way to charge for that. And if you read the book, I actually don't believe in buy side advisors. They're completely inefficient. They're very expensive, but they have to charge it because they make so much money when they're doing transactions that there's no other way to compensate for it. So for the average, you know, wannabe acquisition entrepreneur, it's completely unaffordable. Hmm. I'm, I'm building a new product right now, and it kind of goes like this, Jason. Um, you know, and at the risk of pitching, I, I don't mean to. I'm just sort of explaining the opportunity. Say the thing. That's what I asked. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's, there's, there's essentially 10 schools that teach entrepreneurship through acquisition. All 10 of them, it's the number one. Uh, MBA elective course. It's Mm. Stanford, Harvard, University of Chicago, Columbia, Northwestern, Wharton, London Business School, INSEAD, Darden. You get the picture, right? Um, uh, University of Illinois is just launching theirs. I think they're number 10, maybe number 11. It's the top business schools in the world. Uh, What about everyone else, right? So I've brought in a curriculum developer to help me take my, what what I'm considering now to be my minimum viable product that's out there and just build a world-class you know, online program. We're coupling that with, you know, group coaching, um, some elaborate tools that I've put together, um, and ultimately community around helping entrepreneurs sort of get from, you know, zero to 80% in terms of, well, I guess 100% if that's a transaction. The thing is, is I re- it's really important to me that I don't want people to decide that they want to buy a business so badly that they make a bad decision, right? So it's one of these things where you don't want 100% uh, uh, you know, I don't want to strive for a hundred percent success rate because we'll probably result in some people being in a bad situation or something that they felt they needed to do because, you know, their mother-in-law didn't understand what they were doing and they just needed a job or something, you know? Um, so that's, what I'm, that's, those are the two things I'm working on. And of course, um, um, I said the percentages don't add up because I spent, you know, another amount of time on, on I still own two companies that I own and operate. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that'd be over a hundred percent of my time. So, right. 
<laughs> we all know how much we work. Right. <laughs> it, is, it is ridiculous. Awesome. Well, uh, Walker Dybel, the author of Buy, Then Build, you can get that on Amazon like I did. And uh, also, where could people get a hold of you? What's the best way to do that if they're like, hey, I like what I hear and, and maybe he can help me? Sure, Jason, thanks. I've got um, buythenbuilt.com has a ton of free resources for anyone interested in, in taking a step further. Great, fantastic. Well, thanks a lot for being here today. Hey, this is Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com msb and join us on the mission to make space boring. 